Hi, everyone. Radhika Jones here, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. With award season in full swing, there's no better time to become a Vanity Fair subscriber. Let our editors take you behind the scenes of this year's nominated films, from prestige indies to major blockbusters, plus exclusive coverage of Hollywood's biggest events. Visit VanityFair.com today and save 10% on a yearly subscription for a limited time with promo code OSCARS. That's VanityFair.com, promo code OSCARS, for 10% off a year of insights and access you won't find anywhere else. Subscribe today while this offer lasts through March 31st, 2024. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. Oh, I like that enthusiasm. Thank you. <laughs> We're going to be joined later in the episode by one of our contributors, Chris Rosen, to talk about Borat's two Borat's subsequent movie films slash many other titles, um, just as a teaser that Chris is coming eventually. And then at the end of this episode, we're going to share an interview that I did with Sofia Coppola, whose new film On the Rocks is available now on Apple TV+. And while we're doing teasers, I feel like I should set up that next week's episode, as we've mentioned, is going to be a 2000 Oscar flashback episode um, because we did not want to record a podcast on Election Day. We weren't sure you wanted to listen to a podcast recorded on Election Day and released later in the week. So um, some nostalgia to look forward to. Um, Do you guys want to tease any of your rewatch hot takes that you're going to be coming in with next week? Well, I just want to say one thing, Katie. Have we cursed ourselves by, by picking, picking 2000? A, a year when the fucking presidency was stolen by the Supreme Court? <laughs> Maybe. Yikes. Please don't blame us if things go that way next week. But no, I mean, it was such an interesting year at the Oscars for a variety of reasons. I mean, you know, some filmmakers like Steven Soderbergh kind of becoming ascendant and one of the last gasps of like Lassie Hallstrom with Chocolat before he kind of wandered away into like Nicholas Sparks territory after a couple years of being Oscar-y. <laughs> um, just a real crux point for the nation, for the world, for cinema, for me and at 17. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Last night I was going to cross one of the more challenging ones off my list, but I was feeling too bummed. So I just watched Chocolat, even though <laughs> I wasn't even planning to rewatch Chocolat because I know that one pretty well. But I was like, you know what? You know what I need? This. Yeah. So yeah, uh, I'm excited. Now for more than ever, chocolate. Yeah. Now more than ever, chocolate. I mean, yeah. not to dig too much into it because we're going to talk about it, you know, next week or whatever. But like, 
what a feast for the eyes that movie is, <laughs> including Julia Binoche. Uh, what a feast. So, yeah, there you we go. Should, we should say we'll also be joined by our friends Joe Reed and Chris Vile, hosts of the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast. Joe has been on the show before to uh, help us preview the year ahead in uh, Oscars, which this year really, I don't think I can bear to listen to that one. But anyway, uh, they know even more about the Oscars than we do. So it will be a fun one. But this week, we still have movies to talk about which is fun, and TV shows and all kinds of things uh, appearing on your television. Uh, So we're just going to kind of hit a bunch of them uh, before we dive deep into Borat. Uh, But I wanted to start before any of that with a couple of updates on the Oscar race, which is ongoing. Um, And there was a little bit of news last week, Cub Buchanan of The New York Times, um, who wrote a big kind of preview piece about Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, tweeted confirmation from Netflix that Chadwick Boseman will in fact be a Best Actor contender for that movie. I think people who hadn't seen it, kind of, you know, Viola Davis is like the big... um, driving force behind it, like thought maybe she'd be lead, he'd be a supporting actor. It's interesting because Netflix also has a big Best Actor contender in Delroy Lindo of The the Five Bloods. But to me, I think we discussed last week when the Ma Rainey trailer came out, it's kind of hard to argue with a massive narrative that will be behind Chadwick Boseman. So I guess the question I want to ask is, Richard, are you backing down from Anthony Hopkins, given this news? (laughs) You know, I don't know. I did see when Kyle uh, tweeted that out and people were, you know, kind of in his mentions as they often are debating things. that it's actually really rare for someone to win an Oscar posthumously. Yeah, it um, is. It's also very rare for someone to be nominated for an Oscar posthumously. A- absolutely. So it's a it's a rare thing in any direction. But, um, you know, obviously Heath Ledger did, but that was supporting. And Peter felt Finch. It's Peter Finch. Um, he was you know, lead, I think. The yeah, guy from Il Postino was nominated for Best Actor, but didn't win. Uh, Richard Farnsworth was nominated posthumously. Oh, I think Christoph Waltz was technically dead when he won his second. (laughs) Dead on the inside. And then he went on to start a lead of Battle Angel. It's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, it is is extremely rare. Um, And I think Bozeman is kind of comparable to Heath Ledger in a way as like someone who died really shockingly and really young um, and not to mention like the superhero franchise connection like, he was just so famous when he died and so like at the peak of his career in some ways yeah I, you know I wanted to make sure that I was as caught up as I could be on the best actor other best actor contenders when we talked about this so uh, yesterday I watched Sound of Metal uh, which has a great Riz Ahmed performance he's just really really fantastic in that movie and then I hadn't seen to five bloods yet so i watched it uh delroy lindo also just incredible but the problem is with the delroy lindo performance is that as you watch it chadwick boseman is right there too so you know yeah. it's like almost like a double a double reminder of of boseman's star quality he's he's so um and especially since that movie you know, no no major spoilers for Defy Bloods if you haven't seen it yet, but that movie is about the memory of the character that Chadwick Boseman plays. Yeah. So like it just feet further if you're if you're gonna spend some time with Delroy Lindo's incredible performance in that movie, you're also gonna be fed a bit more of the of the Boseman narrative while you're doing so, you know? Yeah. I should also say that, you know, Massimo Troisi, who was nominated for Best Actor posthumously for Il Postino, had not, as far as I'm aware, starred in a culturally defining superhero mega blockbuster. Yeah. No, so, like, I, Bozeman It was has, not released outside of Italy, actually. Yeah. It was just, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, there, there's so much narrative, like you said, Joanna, with the Five Bloods thing and... And also Ma Rainey on its own seems poised to be a kind of event movie like we talked about last week mm-hmm. um, for a variety of reasons, one of which is Bozeman's presence in it. So I think he has a lot. There's a there's a lot to that story that makes it feel unique. 
And so it's a very long answer to your question, Katie. Yeah, I think I've backed off the fearless forecast for Hopkins um, to some extent. Um, although I will add, I don't think this person will win, but and I can't even tell you who it is, but I did watch a movie kind of long lead consideration yesterday with a younger actor who they are big time going to push for best actor, I think. But I don't think he'll, he would spoil it. So yeah, it does right now feel like all things, you know, unpredictable accounted for like yeah i mean i think the boseman narrative feels strong right now as it as it perhaps should there's yeah. a big narrative building also behind Stephen yun who would be um i believe the first asian american actor to be nominated for best actor you know i know we talked about minari already on this podcast i haven't gotten a chance to watch it yet i'll get to see it later a little later this week i like this nomination narrative that's building for him um mm-hmm. he does such incredible work and i would be thrilled to see a nomination but i'm not sure that narrative is i think that's what they're gunning for is the nomination not necessarily the win if that makes sense well yeah and Especially if, like, it becomes clear that, like, oh, well, Chadwick Boseman's in this competition. Like, no one's going to be like, all right, time to take down Chadwick Boseman, the lead in the best actor race. Like, everyone else can kind of, like, I think, yeah. in some way, graciously take a backseat there. So so that's Delroy Lindo and Chadwick Boseman competing against each other, in a sense. That's two Netflix uh, mm-hmm. leads competing against each other. And then it was just, um, I think it was Scott Feinberg, maybe, who broke the news yesterday that all of the Chicago 7 actors will be running and supporting all of them. And so I think that's a good choice. They aren't picking a lead. But like, I wonder if that speaks to Netflix being a bit more judicious. I mean, first of all, when I was running down the list of like movies we're talking about in awards, I made a, I made a spreadsheet for myself yesterday when I ran oh, down I have like, a spreadsheet I could have shared you on it Joanna I'm so sorry <laughs> no I have no but it's it's good to build your own spreadsheet because then you like <laughs> things get sticky in your brain or whatever but like <laughs> when I was when I was listing all the studios it's just like the Netflix narrative is so overwhelming especially it's, it's, since yeah. since we're like all at home and Netflix just seems so accessible to the conversation and all that sort of stuff like that. But, you know, we talked last year about them maybe shooting themselves in the foot by by not being as judicious as they might be with where they decide to put their efforts between Irishman and Marriage Story, et cetera, et cetera. So um, maybe this speaks to a more precise strategy where they're like, okay, we're already cannibalizing ourselves with Delroy Lindo versus Chadwick Boseman. Let's keep the Chicago 7 guys in a category that we might better win. And that's Um, not even mentioning Gary Oldman and Mank, um, which is this other massive Netflix movie that's coming around the bend pretty soon. Um, And uh, Mark Harris did a big interview with David Fincher that ran in New York Magazine last week, which is a great read. Like, I got to it late, kind of after, like, Twitter had been picking it apart, and it's just so, like, David Fincher is just thoughtful and, like, interesting to talk to and, like, a little self-deprecating about, like, how many takes he does and how what a perfectionist he is, even as he says, like, movies aren't NASA, which you would think if any filmmaker would think movies are NASA, it'd be David Fincher. Um, and, it, you know, it's not as much about Gary Oldman's performance, but, like, that is a massive star performance in this massive movie. Gary Oldman won Best Actor, like, three years ago, so like, but there's, like, no pressure on him to win again, I think, so it's, like, almost like, almost, like Netflix can like slot him in and not worry about him being competition for Chadwick Boseman because he just got his. You know what I mean? Right. Just further like reflect glory on them. Um, <laughs> further reflect know. glory on great nation of Netflix. <laughs> I don't know. It's going to be wild. Netflix is really going to 
we talked about last year maybe being their year, but I, I got to say, I think pandemic year, everyone at home year is Netflix year, you know? I mean, we're just, I feel like we're just going to talk about it over and over again yeah. um, for months. Although, I mean, this isn't, this is kind of the best actor conversation, but the trailer for News of the World came out last week. And uh, as part of our 2000 conversation we'll do last week, I rewatched Castaway. So I was like feeling very high on Tom Hanks. And I saw that and I was like, maybe that's the studio movie that emerges as like the Netflix spoiler. Like if you don't want to give all your votes to Netflix, come like vote for this old fashioned Western with Tom Hanks coming out from Universal. The trailer said it's in theaters on Christmas. We'll see. But uh, that's an option there, too. And directed by a guy who I think the Academy maybe has wanted to like give awards to for a while, you know, in, in Paul Greengrass. Yeah. And it looks big. So if you're trying to like celebrate the bigness of movie making, uh, go with yeah. that one. Okay, going back into what is currently on the small screen, um, I wanted to just talk briefly about the fact that The Mandalorian is coming. Um, We have not seen it. No one has seen it. They're not giving out screeners again. Um, Joanna, you and Anthony Brazenkan are going to be doing a couple of bonus still-watching episodes about it. Uh, Anything people should know before they head into the next season of The Mandalorian? They're telling us as little as possible. Um, I think they're pretty stoked with how their, like, Baby Yoda surprise went last time. So they are going to double down on the on the secrecy. Uh, I have some intel for you. Uh, you know, it's just sort of going through things to look out for. At the end of last season, if you recall, anything beyond the adorableness of Baby Yoda, um, Giancarlo Esposito sort of came on the scene as this character, Moff Gideon. He's a, a villainous character, <laughs> as most things named Moff are, and uh, and he so he'll be sort of like the big bad at least of season two, if not beyond. Um, and he had this really cool weapon, the dark saber, and apparently Giancarlo Esposito has said in an interview that like the origin of the dark saber will be a big part of of season two. So that has a lot of you know if you're at home going like who, um, I understand, but that has a lot of history for the anime, the Star Wars anime series, Clone Wars and Rebels. And so it really feels like between that and the fact that Rosario Dawson is joining the cast as Ahsoka Tano, who is this huge character from the animated series, it really seems like season two, The Mandalorian is going to make a big effort to connect this existent lore, which may not mean much to the casual viewer, but like a generation was raised on these animated shows. And so Mandalorian season two is like, seems to be leaning in more to that connection. Favreau said something, John Favreau, uh, you know, creator of, of the Mandalorian, co-creator of the Mandalorian said something interesting to Entertainment Weekly. He was comparing the development of the Mandalorian to how Game of Thrones became more sprawling in his view in later seasons, or I I guess to put it this way, in season one of Game of Thrones, we're following like the Stark family and the Lannister families, but characters just keep getting flung further and further afield from each other as the show goes on. And so Favreau has sort of uh, implied that this will happen with some of the characters we've met in The Mandalorian. So whereas season one was just focused almost entirely on Pedro Pascal and this adorable puppet, I think what we're going to start to see is maybe... That puppet's name is Giancarlo Esposito. (laughs) (laughs) Have some respect. Um, I think what we're going to see in this season is, you know, maybe an episode will follow a different character. Maybe we'll get an Ahsoka Tano episode. Maybe we'll get a whatever episode. So it's just going to try to build it out. And that's good because I was a little worried that, you know, the, the laconic... Uh, masked uh, bounty hunter and the adorable puppet, like how much can they sustain 
a show, how much character is, how much there is there, you know what I mean? And I don't need The Mandalorian to be like the deepest thing I see all year, but, you know, because Star Wars has always been built on like archetypes, but... But I was a little worried about season two. So I, I'm I'm pleased to hear that they have plans to sort of like expand the universe a bit while hopefully, you know, giving us the the dose of serotonin we need in the form of, of Baby Yoda. Do we think that um, the recent Twitter controversy of co-star Gina Carano will come into bear here? Also, Rosario Dawson is joining the cast and she has had her own issues within the trans community uh you know i'm just curious like i know that there have, i've seen people online who are like hey not only did the mandalorian like keep one transphobe on their payroll but they hired another one that might just be online chatter but i'll be curious to see if like you know season two is oftentimes of a big popular thing when the kind of backlash if you want to call it that the reckoning comes and i'll be curious to see if the mandalorian um is subject to that yeah, I don't know. I, I haven't, I, my Twitter feed might look differently than yours. I haven't seen that in an overwhelming way, but it's certainly not something that we would want to ignore in any way. Um, Rosario Dustin, I was actually not aware of her history with that, uh, with that subject. And I don't, it's a very don't, weird story that's all kind of allegations. I mean, I, yeah, I will absolutely look into be, it, but, yeah. be looking into it when we're yeah. done recording here. Um, other people who are joining the cast are Timothy Oliphant um, in a role we don't know about, but I'm always here for some Western gunslinging uh, Timothy Oliphant. And also uh, Tamora Morrison, who played, not to get too weedsy in Star Wars lore, but who played Jango Fett and the clones, all the clones in, in uh, the prequels, is showing up. And so a bunch of people think he might be playing Boba Fett. They've been waiting for Boba Fett to show up on The Mandalorian. So anyway, I mean, is it going to be good? I hope so. Will there be more Baby Yoda gifts and memes? Absolutely. I can guarantee that at least. So, um, and maybe that's exactly what we will need uh, again this holiday season, just as we felt like we did last year. I don't even need it to be cheerful and like all about cute baby Yoda because I think they learned from the first season like that you dole him out carefully. Yeah. Um, but just the idea of the escaping into the world of the Mandalorian is super appealing. Like this fantasy world where like things might be tougher than they are here. Um, so you can at least have that going for you. You, you don't have Moff Gideon on your tail. Exactly. <laughs> so that's the Mandalorian season two. Uh, uh, Anthony and I have not figured out exactly how many episodes uh, or what all we will be doing with still watching. But Richard and I are doing finishing up. We are who we are starting the undoing. So there's plenty of content over the still watching feed. But I have been getting a lot of tweets about whether or not Anthony and I will be doing the Mandalorian. I can promise you we will be doing at least one episode, if not a couple of still watching the Mandalorian. So, you know, just clog in your feeds with content to get us through the rest of the year. <laughs> yeah. Well, Joanna, while you're talking, um, you talk about something that you actually have seen, but none of us have. Um, you saw the animated film Wolfwalkers, um, which won uh, the Audience Award at AFI Fest, which I think happened either entirely virtually or mostly virtually. It's from, uh, what is it, Cartoon Saloon is what they yeah, call the people Saloon. behind Secret of Kells. It's going to be on yeah. Apple uh, in the, like a month, so we'll talk about it later. Um, but you tend to know more about uh, animation and the animation Oscar race than I do. And this feels like in a year where, you know, there's Pixar movies, but... Onward wasn't super well received. Soul, we still have yet to see. But, uh, you know, is this going to be the one that, that breaks through for these guys who've made all these beautiful movies? I hope so. They, you know, so they made Secret of Kells, Song of the Sea, which is my favorite uh, that they've ever made. And then The Breadwinner, which was also a really beautiful film. They just have, like, the most 
just gorgeous style. We're going to talk about this more when we've all seen it. Um, I just wanted to like plant a flag on this and say like this is a gorgeous experience. Um, I think it's all going to kind of depend on whether the Apple platform feels like something people feel like they can watch movies on. I mean, like I know the people don't vote for for the animated Oscar, but like I think it will help the narrative if more people have actually seen it. And I don't know. If Apple TV Plus, like, I'll be looking at the On the Rocks narrative and how that's going and stuff like that. But, like, I don't know if that platform is something that people feel like they need to have right now, unfortunately. Um, I wish that were the case. You know, it's not like a Netflix where, you know, Wolf Walkers is just going to drop on there and I could be like, go watch it immediately. They're like, I have to sign up for a service to see this. I don't know. Anyway, it's incredible. It's gorgeous. It's uh, Irish folklore again, this time with, like, skin changers. Uh, Sean Bean is there as a weary father of an intrepid tomboy girl. So if you want those season one Game of Thrones <laughs> feelings back, uh, they're here for you. So we'll talk about it more. But I just I just find those films, those cartoon saloon films, so magical, so beautiful. And um, I haven't seen Soul yet. I'm excited to see it, the new Pixar film. That will probably you know, what dominates the the narrative. But I always like it when these slightly more indie-feeling uh, animated films edge their way into the race, you know? Yeah. And and you can drink outdoors at the Cartoon Saloon, right? Like, they, it's not <laughs> indoors yet. But. Yeah. They have the yeah. plexiglass barriers to make it all, make okay, it all safe great. for everybody. Hey, everybody. I'm entertainment journalist Drew Taylor. And I'm filmmaker Charles Hood. And we host Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. But right now, we're about to launch our first ever universe-expanding miniseries. That's right. Get ready for Light the Fuse presents The Directors. We'll speak to filmmakers who have made iconic Paramount movies and get them to open up in a way that only we can. That's right. Listen to Light the Fuse presents The Directors wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode of Little Gold Men is brought to you by MUBI, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. They have everything from iconic directors to emerging auteurs. There is always something new to discover because with MUBI, each and every film is hand-selected so you can explore incredible movies streaming anytime, anywhere. Right now, they have a film collection for performers we love, and they are highlighting one of this year's Oscar frontrunners, Lily Gladstone. So I am here with David Canfield to talk about how much we love Lily Gladstone, and especially her film that is now on movie, Certain Women. David, fond memories there. Fond memories. What an introduction. None of us knew who she was before that film, um, but it's quite a thing to be in a Kelly Reichardt film with Michelle Williams, Kristen Stewart, and Laura Dern and completely steal it. And uh, now we're talking about it to this day. 
You can try Mubi for free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash LittleGoldMen. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash LittleGoldMen for a whole month of great cinema for free. Mubi.com slash LittleGoldMen. Bouncing on to uh, other new movies. And uh, this one, you're going to have to tell me how you can see it, Richard. But you saw The Craft colon Legacy. I actually didn't realize it was it had a um, subtitle after it. Um, but there's a new craft movie. Who can say no to that? Um, how can people watch this? It's out this week in time for Halloween, yes? You have to find three friends, mm-hmm. call the four corners, and then the movie just kind of appears <laughs> on your TV. <laughs> Dibs on air. Manon. I'm air. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a, it, no, it's a Manon Plus, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I think it's just regular old on demand, like okay. uh, you know, iTunes or your cable provider, or whatever. Yeah, it's uh, it's not a remake. Mm. We are supposed to be strenuous about that. It is a is a follow up, I guess we could call it. Um, I don't want to call it a sequel exactly because, like Force Awakens, it just does the story again, but like with new characters, and it's not exactly the same, obviously. But yeah, it's an interesting thing to revisit because the craft, you know, wasn't like a huge box office hit. It was, you know, but it became this kind of one of those 90s cult classics that because older millennials like myself were in a large ways the ones who kind of built Web 2.0 and thus were able to, you know, sort of install nostalgia for our particular childhoods as like the defining cultural products uh, of, you know, American culture. <laughs> the craft has been like one of those enduring things. Um, you know, the, the original movie is fun, but it has its problems. And this one, which is written and directed by Zoe Lister Jones, who is mostly known as an actor, but has um, made another film previous to this uh, and wrote, I believe, Lola versus the Greta Gerwig film. So it has a much more contemporary social justice aware bent to it, which is an interesting tweak. I don't think that ultimately the movie is successful in trying to contemporize this story because I think that Lister Jones is being so careful to not put a foot wrong to to really I hate using this term because it's been so mutated over the years, but like politically correct essentially. And and woke another kind of appropriated and abused term. I think that she doesn't let her characters breathe under that weight of trying to be socially responsible. I guess, and uh, there are some really interesting tweaks to the narrative, particularly as it pertains to. You remember in the original one, they cast a spell on Skeet Ulrich, um, so he'll like fall in love with Nev Campbell's character. I sure um, do. So there is a boy like that in this film, but they do something very different to him which I spoil in my review if you want to read it, but I won't spoil here. So there's, there's fun, there's fun kind of very like modern takes on an older story, but that's kind of all the movie is. It kind of forgets to be a story, you know? Yeah. I I rewatched, I just rewatched the craft a couple days ago and I gotta say, like, I love that movie. I, I I like kind of, I rewatch it kind of frequently, but that movie without Feruza Bulk's like Gonzo performance in it is would not be what it is. Like that is a performance movie, and it is all Feruza Bulk. Like no offense to Nev Campbell and you know Robin Tunney and stuff like that. But like if you don't have that, you know what I mean. And I'm not. And I'm not. You don't. You don't even have to like knock another performance to say you don't have a Feruza Bulk level uh, in the craft performance in it. Then I don't know that you have a chance of really like shining bright enough to match the original. You know. Yeah, I mean that's something I like explicitly mention in my review is that like 
that without that sense of internal danger among the coven that Figures of Bulk provides um, in such abundance, it becomes a bit flat. And I think it's a really interesting study in someone of my generation and Zoe Lister-Jones trying to make a piece of YA content, essentially, that is cognizant and works well within the kind of the mores of of younger people now, um, especially like online people. Um, I guess everyone that age is online, but well, most most of them to some extent. But, you know, I don't think the experiment really comes together. But uh, yeah, I think that like if you want to see what a new version of this semi-cult classic uh, would look like, it's probably worth the, I don't think it's like a $30 rental. I think it might be like more 15-ish. I don't know. Yeah, I think the $30 rental experiment may be over for a little while, which is something. Something's working in our favor. Um, so one last uh, on-man movie to get into before we dive headlong into Borat 2. Um, I wanted to talk briefly about Kindred, which is an IFC Midnight release. And usually I run away from IFC Midnight movies because they are scary. And I don't handle scary movies very well. Um, but this one is interesting and much more psychological than, you know, there's like monsters. It's a... Uh, Kind of about the monsters in your family. Um, it's this. It's British movie uh, directed by a, a debut director, Joe Mark Antonio, um, and it stars Tamara Lawrence, who uh, is on is in On Chesil Beach, which I've never seen, but is like pretty much a newcomer. Um, but also Fiona Shaw, who I feel like I every time I turn around, I'm seeing her this year. Like she's in Ammonite in a small role, and she's in you know La Holmes, uh, and then she's in this as well. Uh, and she kind of gets to do like spooky matriarch in a haunted British house thing, like kind of like a, a Mrs. Danvers but uh, set in the present day. Um, and Tamara Lawrence is this woman and she and her boyfriend are going to have a baby and then the boyfriend dies in kind of this freak accident and she winds up living in the mansion with his mom and this, uh, you know, kind of like surrogate brother there and uh, the amount of control they try to take over her increases in a way that makes her suspicious something is going on. Uh, it is not irrelevant that she is black and this family is white and I think it's interesting how that kind of racial dynamic plays under the surface of this story. But it's just like really nifty little thriller with like some you know interesting camera work in it and some dream sequency stuff. Um, I enjoyed getting to take a look at it. So it's kind of a, uh, I don't know, like a nice alternative to the spooky season stuff. I'm not someone who usually tries to like watch a horror movie around Halloween. But if you are, you might want to take a look at this. Can I recommend, which is so against my type as well, can I recommend another horror movie that's coming Please. out this week that I'll be reviewing this week? It's a movie called His House, which is directed by Remy Weeks. It's going to be on Netflix on the 30th and it's uh, it was a it was at Sundance it was a it's a debut feature film uh it got pretty solid notices and and I for good reason it's about two uh refugees from um South Sudan who end up in the UK and have been followed by without spoiling much an angry spirit of some kind and um it's a really interesting mix of sort of a geopolitical tragedy and uh haunted house movie and uh two really great performances uh in the two leads there there are a couple but the one who really stands out for me is wunmi mosaku who people will know as um uh one of the leads on lovecraft country she plays the sister of uh journey smollett's character Mm. um and she's terrific in it it's it's genuinely scary but also really moving i mean it's more scary than like Haunting of Hill House was scary, like jumpy scary, but it also has that same emotional richness to it that I think for me anyway, helps temper the, you know, the fright, I guess. 
I like this that we're changing our stripes right now, Richard. We're know, accepting horror into our lives. Such grown-ups. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Chris Rosen, I teased your presence in the beginning of the show. Now you're here to talk about Borat 2 with us. Uh, thank you for jumping on with us again. Oh, of course. Anytime. Love being here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I brought you in because you've been like chronicling Borat too, like well before I managed to see it. You've been like covering it for the site kind of every twist and turn. You have an, an invaluable guide to how they pulled off some of the sequences. Um, what's impressive to me is how much some of it is still shrouded in mystery. We don't really know how a lot of this movie was made, but you have been kind of capturing it from that. Um, just like from having been immersed in Borat world for like at least a week or so, like do you feel like this movie is having a similar gigantic impact to the first one or that it's kind of like it's earned the fact that Borat has returned at all? Yes, I do. I don't think you could. It it definitely is. I mean, the problem with the movie that I have and certainly like I think it's just not as original as the first one, right? Because the first one exists. So that's, sure. I think, part of it. But I do think it seems like it was everywhere. I, I, I haven't seen, I saw like something today that had like, it had like one point something million people watching on Amazon. I, I, however, you know, there's always those like weird, uh, the streaming metrics are all very uh, kind of hidden and stuff. That that said, I do think like anecdotally, it seems like it was definitely the biggest thing Amazon probably has done from a movie standpoint ever. Um, it was all over. People covered it. And like there was a real uh, genuine audience interest, it seemed at least on social media, in the movie, good and bad. Um, so I do think that from that standpoint, it worked whether or not – you know, it it says anything that anybody wouldn't know uh, beforehand, I think is up for debate. But I, I enjoyed watching it. I thought it was fun. Uh, Chris, I will not stand for this Aeronauts erasure. That is the be- <laughs> that is the biggest thing movies wise Amazon has done. Cer- certainly the biggest balloon it's definitely ever done. Yeah, true. That's so. what Borat's missing. Really. <laughs> Needed another hot air balloon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Richard and Joanna, where were you guys on Borat before uh, this came? I, I realized for myself, like, I had never properly seen the first one. So I was kind of, oh. like, new to Borat in <laughs> wow. a weird way. Um, How but, did like, you do that? I don't yeah, know. <laughs> I think I'd seen parts of it. Like, I was, like, a functioning adult when Borat came out. But, like, I know all the jokes, obviously. Um, so I think I was maybe in a position to be surprised by Borat, too. And it, from everything I understand, like, the it's more, like, emotional in a weird way than the first one. Um, but, I mean, Joanna, you seem like you were fully in meshed in Borat. So how ready were you for this one? Uh, I mean, I guess I, I, I saw the sentiment uh, repeated on, on Twitter, so I'm not alone in this, but I guess that was the age demo that like all my guy friends, I saw Borat, but all my guy friends definitely saw Borat as well and then just quoted it for like five years straight. Yeah. Um, same with like, same thing happened to Napoleon Dynamite. So it was just sort of like this Borat fatigue that's not the movie's fault, but yeah. really the like fan fandom fault. So um, I was sort of not that interested in Borat 2, and I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> so that's where I am on Borat 2. Yeah, Katie, I don't think I've ever seen the first Borat in full either. I think that I just thought I had because I had seen clips and heard, you know, my wife so so many times. That, yeah, yeah. But I'm like, actually, like, no, I don't really know what that movie, what happens in that movie. Um, it's just like a bunch of real people like saying racist stuff. Right. That when they don't think that they're in a movie. And I really have a hard time, even if when the people are bad, I have a really hard time watching that kind of like person playing character interacts with real person. I think it's just so awkward and and it makes me jump out of my skin. But I, so I tried to watch Borat 2 and I lasted. I was very proud of myself. I lasted 20 minutes and then I was like, I have to turn this off. <laughs> 
So here's the thing that made me last through it because I I feel the same way and like I've been talking to Chris a little bit about how I like feel for the people even like the woman who likes who writes Jews will not replace us on a cake. But I feel like the movie makes room for real people who are not just like, you know, like kind of actively heroes. Like there's this woman who's a Holocaust survivor who he talks to that Chris from your article, I understand like he kind of tipped her off that it was a satire. So he wasn't just like being wildly offensive walking into a synagogue. But like even this guy who works at like a fax machine operations place and just like kind of like does the ridiculous stuff that Borat asked him to do. Like it, it reveals people as being like, polite and willing to go along with things and in some ways that reveals like their willingness to like sing horrible songs about killing journalists but like sometimes just to like do weird stuff for a weird person and I I was weirdly warmed by that yeah I mean I think you know like one of the big sequences in the movie too is he goes and lives with these uh, conspiracy theorists who very very much buy into the QAnon idea that uh, Hillary Clinton is drinking children's blood spiked with adrenal gland uh, fluid or something. I, I'm not actually sure on the the full details, uh, but they believe that. And <laughs> and they he goes and lives with them after like coronavirus quarantine for he said like three or four days in character. Um, they knew it was like part of a. I think they knew it was obviously being filmed. It's not like they set up like hidden cameras, but it was like they were like, oh, we're they didn't realize that he was you know, Borat or whatever. Uh, And it's interesting watching them because they have like clearly uh, been, you know, brainwashed with a bunch of deranged, very offensive, uh, scary views. And yet also are relatively, uh, you know, at their core or maybe not. I mean, they're kind of like, like they're kind, like they're very welcoming to him. Right. And they're like trying to, you know, explain things to him. And like, I, I think in the, Maybe in the he spoke to Maureen Dowd. I think it was in that yeah. interview. He was like, they're actually like, you know, they're decent people who have been like corrupted by a much thing, a thing that they don't even maybe fully understand. And I think that's like a lot of this movie. Maybe is like a little bit of like, there are certainly terrible people in the world, and then like you know, there are also a bunch of people who are unwitting pawns in like a much greater. Uh, destructive, corrosive, you know, right-wing campaign to discredit everybody on earth. And these people are kind of like just pushed along into that, uh, you know, maybe against their better judgment. Um, So I do think that ends up being interesting. That's why it feels important that it, it leads up to Rudy Giuliani at the end, which I think at this point everyone in the in the earth knows happens because he is not spouting QAnon. I guess he says that like ch- the Wuhan flu was like created by China or something, but like he's just being creepy and weird in a way that like so many powerful white men are, and that's kind of like the thing that stands out from it. Like it, it's punching upward enough that it doesn't feel like it's just out there to like shame everyday people for like believing in a weird conspiracy theory release because the system is broken. Yeah, I think, I, you know, I think that is definitely the problem with, I guess, Borat in general is that he's punching down on a lot of uh, silly people. I think this one, the movie does, I, I think, somewhat push back on that a little, like you said. Like, I think the, the Rudy thing is good. I think, you know, there's a woman at one point, he goes to buy a dress for his daughter, who we should mention, uh, Maria Bakalova, who oh, is we'll a get to newcomer. Her. We'll get in there. <laughs> She's great. Uh, he goes to buy her a dress, and the woman who owns the dress shop is like, totally no Fs and like very funny and like kind of like honestly like rolling with the Borat thing in a way that I found like really different from the previous film which I rewatched before watching this one and again I saw it in the theater never saw it again didn't remember much uh, and most of the other movie I think like he does get it, it definitely has like a different flavor at times so I think that helps too but anyway. yeah yeah and it feels like a lot of people are just kind of like they know that something is happening and they know that they're like they're on camera and like maybe they suspected Sasha Baron Cohen but they kind of go with it. 
and that that lessens some of the like vicarious embarrassment for me. Um, but let's talk about Maria Bakalova because you know here we are on our Oscar podcast. Like she, they could do a supporting actress campaign for her, right? Like she's incredible. I'm fully on board for that. I think she should actually. <laughs> I think this year, especially when there's uh, not a lot of, you know, not a ton of options in general for movies. And also, like, her performance is just incredible. Like, because again, uh, she is got to like play this role and is also just the the degree of difficulty I found very impressive. She's totally fearless. She's not Sasha Baron Cohen. Uh, so like she doesn't have like, you know, it's like she's just thrown into these situations and really kind of has to know there's no net. Like I was thinking, you know, even like the Rudy Giuliani scene is pretty intense and like obviously very heavily edited, even though I think, you know, you could do the, the scene speaks for itself, but there are obviously, you know, you don't get like, it's not like an uninterrupted, like 20 minute scene. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it's like, she is alone in that room with Rudy Giuliani doing an interview. She's at that point in the movie, this is a spoiler alert, but I mean, honestly, I don't think it is, uh, at this point, <laughs> uh, she's alone. She's pretending to be a journalist to interview him about the Trump administration response to the coronavirus. Um, she's alone in the room with him. So she's got to like pretend she's a journalist while also playing her own character, uh, while also getting one shot at like what is obviously a very key moment in the film. Like the whole movie builds this stunt with Rudy Giuliani. Uh, if like she does not do a good job convincing Giuliani that she is a journalist in that scene, you know, as, as silly as he comes across and has, you know, arguably dumb as he seems, uh, I think, if she doesn't do as good of a job, he would not have bought it, let's say. And even if yeah. you look at what he said after, you know, he had called the cops on Sasha Baron Cohen over the summer when this happened, he made no mention of her. He only mentioned Sasha Baron Cohen. He, if you look at his original quotes, he was like, I was being interviewed by a journalist and then Sasha Baron Cohen came in. He kind of disconnected the two of them, not realizing that uh. they were working as a team. Uh, I think that speaks to her performance. So I do think it's like an incredible performance. And then a lot of like the touching stuff, which I'm a total sap as, uh, as a, as a quote, father of a daughter, I was really touched <laughs> by a lot of the father daughter stuff in it. I thought it was really sweet. And I think that she really does, it ends up being like a coming, like a, you know, a coming of age story for her. Uh, and I think that stuff really works. And again, I think that's because she's actually a good actress. So I'm all for her getting an Oscar nomination, even though it'll never happen. It's totally silly. I think she's quite good. How can she possibly beat Glenn Close and Hillbilly Elegy? You know, those uh, <laughs> those performances have so much to do with each other. Um, the yeah, Rudy Giuliani it, scene in Hillbilly Elegy is harrowing. <laughs> I've, I, I've already seen it. I cannot even imagine. Um, I think someone did look at the, he does have teenage daughters, um, which the, the Sasha Baron Cohen does in real life, which you can just see so much clearly of like, you know, the Borat version of the dad, like not only like learning to like talk to his daughter, but like learning, like, like awakening to feminism in this way that, you know, and I think, you know, so much of his comedy has been, I think, rightly called out for, um, you know, Borat is kind of like a not anti-immigrant character, but like a funny foreigner. And like Bruno has all these homophobia issues. And so like the quote unquote wokeness of this movie, I, it feels like this genuine evolution. It, it feels like not just like Borat coming around to something, but like Sasha Baron Cohen as this like white man comedian, like learning how to tell stories outside himself, um, which is, you know, so many people, so many comedians of his generation even haven't been able to do that. Um, and it makes this movie not feel like 2006 just like reared back up and was like, hey, want to do this again? It, it has more to say. 
Also, it's really funny. Yeah, no, I think really, that's like, true. And I think like it ends up being, I, I saw the original Borat with one of my of my good friends and, the, and then we were talking about this one and he was like, I think the original was funnier, which again, the 14 years ago, we were much younger and we saw it in the movie theater. It's a different experience, but he was like, I think this is a better movie, let's say. Mm-hmm. Like it does seem like it's less of a collection of scenes and more, has more of an emotional through line. And I kind of would agree with that. I think that a lot of this is funny. I definitely laugh. Just a lot of it is shock. Like a lot of the shock of it is very funny. But, you know, I think as a movie, it ends up working pretty well. I, I, Sasha Baron Cohen, yeah, I think he does. It's, uh, you know, you could say cynically, like he had to have her in this movie because he's too famous. And the movie kind of like goes into that right in the beginning. Like the premise is that Borat is so recognizable that he actually can't go on as Borat, he has to like put disguises on and throw her into a lot of situations that maybe he would have done previously. So some of it, not to be too cynical, is like out of a necessity he needed to, right. you know, kind of bring yeah. a daughter in. Um, but at the same time, with what they end up doing with her, I think is really, really sweet. And the movie, the very end of the movie, I'm like, I've like really in, like the very very end. I think is fascinating and like really good. And I think it like ends on a great music cue and like their little interaction at the end is sweet. I won't spoil that, but uh, if you could, even if you just watch the last five minutes, I think you'd enjoy that like little three months later postscript of what the world is like after uh, he comes back from America. Yeah, my my favorite joke in the movie is in that la- is not in that part, but like kind of in the last ten minutes of the movie. So hang in there. You said that Sasha Baron Cohen had a teenage daughter, and I was like, no way. He and Isla Fisher have not been together that long. And then oh, I no. looked it up, oh, and then no. I felt really old. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> I, found a headli- I found a headline from 2007 that it that read, it's a baby girl for Borat. So, yeah. So, technically, I think she's 13, oh, technically oh, a teen. So, yeah. yeah. They, uh, uh, <laughs> they, mar- they only married in 2010, so happy 10-year anniversary to them. But they yeah. were together for a while before that. Um, Katie, yeah. I want, one last one I want to ask. Speaking of Sasha Baron Cohen, then, obviously he's having a – do you think like the Borat uh, – asking all of you guys, do you think having Borat and having him be so – you know, it's like kind of like a big moment here will help his nascent candidacy for Chicago 7, let's say? You think like well, this we kind just- of thing only adds to that? We were talking about that earlier because um, we were talking about how Netflix has announced that all the Chicago 7 actors will run in supporting actor. Um, yeah. And I think we had talked on this show when we were talking about the movie that like he feels like the biggest performance you could put in the supporting actor race, even though there's so many to choose from. I mean, I would think so. Like, I think this movie is being pretty well received. I think he, when he does interviews out of character, too, he comes off really well. Like, he's very smart. And, then he, you know, he's done this work for the Anti-Defamation League. Like, he is a thoughtful and person that you kind of want in your club in a way and he's been doing interesting and like kind of culture defining work for 15 years so why not throw it to Abby Hoffman I don't think it could hurt um I don't like any noise around someone I think well most noise around someone can nope maybe any noise around someone can help them uh win an Oscar but um (laughs) but I will say for my own personal taste I wish she would not like taunt the president i don't know it's like i i it just that we've been talking katie and i've been talking about that a little bit off podcast it's like it's not like i'm precious about the president obviously but it's just sort of when he's like oh uh, you're gonna need a job in january i'm like how about you not speak that into existence sasha baron cohen just wait he's, so you're worried, just he's, wait. you're worried he's gonna jinx it is what you're saying yeah if you know what you know what if the, tr- if the election doesn't go the way i want it's sasha baron cohen's fault and we all know that's true so and, it's not the uh, fault of our 2000 oscar flashback mm, we, we no, decided no no no, no, no. sasha <laughs> baron cohen's off, fault. off the hook <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say that that tweet that you're referencing, Joanna, had huge uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda SNL vibes to me. Ah! Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It was really rough. 
Yeah. I was like, don't do it. Wait a week. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) This is why this is why we're not recording a podcast on election day. Too risky. Can't can't jinx it. Um, all right. Well, watch Borat, too, on Amazon, I think. I think even if you are like Richard and Joanna and are hesitant for many valid reasons, uh, honestly, for Maria Bakalova alone, I cannot wait to see what she does next. So now let's listen to the interview I did with Sofia Coppola. Uh, if you listen to the show, you know that I have two small children. And On the Rocks is about a character with two small children um, that is kind of finding herself stuck more in mom mode than in the creative life that she once had. There were a lot of places for me to relate to it. Um, but it's a really interesting escapist movie right now. It's a kind of set in a New York that uh, existed when she made it last summer. But now uh, you can't drink in bars indoors, and it's all changed a lot since then. So we talked about that, kind of the element of fantasy to it, and also why she feels fine with you watching it at home on your couch, which is probably the way all of us will see it. So let's listen now to that conversation. Sophia Coppola, thank you so much for joining us here on Little Gold Men and taking the time to talk to me. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. So this movie is about a character who has two small children. Full disclosure, I also have two small children, so I related to it deeply. Um, And I'm wondering if you were thinking about this movie at the time when your children were younger and you were kind of in this big mess of like packing lunches and taking kids to school, or if you really had to get out of that phase of your life before you were able to really think about this movie the way it is now. No, I started thinking about it. I just realized that I, I started working on it like seven years ago when I first registered the WGA title and synopsis, and um, mm. we just found notes of that. I thought, oh, I've been thinking about it for a long time. So um, I was closer to that in that I was thinking about in that moment of having little kids and and um, trying to figure out how to how to write. And I used to stay up all night writing, and then now I have to get up early. And and just the and then also in your kids in school, all of a sudden you're in a whole world of people that you would never know otherwise, and yeah. just the uniqueness of of that is like being um being in a whole new universe that, that is new and just that kind of moment it's a little bit of an identity crisis of like who are you like pushing a stroller and and just I think it takes a moment to get um your bearings and and then to kind of not lose aspects of other parts of yourself yeah and you you know you have um this character who is creative but she's not a filmmaker she's a novelist and it's kind of specific about some parts of her writing process but not specific in other ways and you kind of like almost made it so you could kind of put your own artistic ambitions into her I'm curious about the way you wanted to make Laura both an an artist like you are but not really like you as well yeah I didn't want to be I think it's I mean who really wants to hear about details of filmmaking outside of the (laughs) film world but I, I yeah I hoped it could be universal just about being uh you know, creative person, and I have friends that are women artists and families, and just kind of that that struggle, that balance, and and then as a as a screenwriter, I I can relate to procrastinating, and I wanted the character to be vulnerable enough that you would believe that she would go off on this kind of ridiculous adventure um, with with her dad, with Felix. So she had to be a little um, not grounded and and have that that moment. But I hope, yeah, it's it's, it's meant to be. I hope generic enough that you can kind of put your own self into whatever her creative life is. Yeah. So you said it was seven years ago that you put, registered the WGA title. So you kind of had the title in place. Was it was it the screenplay that we know now when you first registered it? Or has it evolved a lot since that early phase? No, it, it changed a bunch. I kind of was working on it off and on while I was doing other projects. And it was something that I always wanted to complete. And um, and yeah, I just struggled with the writing, the writing of it and... But yeah, no, it had different, it had different, um, 
definitely different versions of it. But at its core, it always was centered around these conversations between Felix and Laura in these restaurants. And there were like three central ones that hopefully shows the evolution of the story and the dynamics between them and then the real life um, around that. Did you ever have in mind the kind of one crazy night New York format, which it like it feels like so much of it is like that. And then it takes the jump to Mexico. Like, I wonder if you like revisited After Hours or kind of that that model of New York story. Yeah, I love After Hours. I haven't watched that um, in a long time. But that is so specific to like one night. But I did, you know, think about kind of classic New York, sophisticated comedies and and then kind of thinking about Blake Edwards for Mexico to, to kind of push it to be a little more silly and and broad and comedic in a way that I'm not um you know it's not my usual thing to kind of push that a little bit and 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 have that kind of style of, of comedy that you know I grew up with to push that did you rewatch those movies did you like do like what what are the exercises you do to kind of expand your writing brain in that way um you know I I just kind of think about those modes and I didn't really rewatch 10 but just thinking about that kind of brightness of those locations and and to kind of just to just to push it and then I watched some old screwball comedies to because I was thinking about that era of the awful truth and um my favorite wife and those kind of those old like mix-up comedies so I had to take to take that model and then do it in a way that didn't feel too retro but to in that tradition and um and then I was thinking about the thin man and and just their mm-hmm. their banter and how, and their relationship. So the Bill Murray character, I think, uh, you know, sets up in some ways with like this myth of Bill Murray that exists in pop culture where he's like, you know, he's everywhere and people say they see him on the street or in a bar or something like that. And it, it, I think the character has a lot more to him than that. But it made me wonder, like, how much he was part of the character as you envisioned him from the beginning, since obviously you have known each other for a while. Was was he there from the start as a, as the model for Felix? You know, I had this idea of this character for Felix and I, I stayed away from thinking of Bill because I thought, oh, I, don't, I can't work with Bill again. I don't want to <laughs> disappoint anyone that, you know, can't live up to how they loved him in Lost in Translation. But then as I started working on it more, I, you know, thought of, because it was a mix of a composite of different characters and there is a little of Bill's just sort of magic and and stopping to smell the flowers and really engaging in life. So he he influenced that. And, um, and then the more I pictured him, I could kind of have that aspect. And, and then of course he, he brought it all to life. And because the character is flawed and complicated and has unlikable qualities that I, I knew that Bill is so lovable and would bring sincerity and heart that he, he, he can make that character, um, palatable. When you have someone like him who you have a working relationship with, do you develop the character together at all? Or is it really your script and then he like brings the performance and those two things are a little bit more separate? We talked about it a little. Rashida and Bill and I had a read through and then we talked about it. And he brought up the idea of the whistling, that he could be working on the whistling. And then that became a motif and a metaphor. So things came out of conversation. And of course, when he comes to set, he always does unexpected things. And that's one of the joys of working with him is... I always think about the scene where he's waiting to take her out and there's a big bouquet of roses and, and in the script he smells the flowers while he's waiting for her because he's that kind of guy. Mm-hmm. But then when we filmed it, Bill like wrapped his arms around and like engulfed and embraced the roses. <laughs> like no one else would do that. And those are the things um, that I, that are so fun about him is the way he, you know, he's the way he approaches things. 
Um, another casting question, because Marlon Wayans, I think, is so like fascinatingly cast in this, because it feels like he's been around forever, and then you realize he's like much younger than you think, because <laughs> he just got famous when he was very young. Um, so, what? Wh- where did your conversation start with him? Why? Why was he the right for this? Um, you know, questionably moral husband we have. Yeah, I mean, I thought that that character's so many times when there's a story kind of centered around female character, there's like the husband character, which is never, sometimes it's not like the interesting or appealing guy. That's just like the husband. And I wanted this character to, to he had to have um, a lot of charm and personality so you would care that she would be with him in the end because you want them to be together. So um, when I when I met Marlon, my, my, my great casting advisor, Fred Roos, mentioned him. And um, when I met Marlon, he just, he's, He's so charismatic and charming, and I thought um, it would be interesting also to see him play something that's not as broad as he usually does and, and to see this other side. And, and I knew that he would bring, yeah, personality to it so that you would care about the couple and the family. Yeah. Yeah. And he has to have this relationship with the kids, too. I mean, Rashida does as well. But when you're building a family like that on screen, and I'm trying to think of when you've like worked with kids that young before, because that's like a whole separate challenge, like not only as a director, but just like the logistically making your day happen. Yeah, I've never I've never worked with little kids in that. I mean, just like in small moments in Marines Matters and things. So I, um, yeah, no, that was that was tricky. That and also to, for it to feel real and um, and those kids are so cute that you that you want it to feel real and not just. Um, yeah, they were great. We, we we did rehearsals before where they hung out. They all hung out together and did stuff so that the kids felt comfortable with them. And and, and Marlon is so affectionate and and fun that um, that, that he put them at ease and. But, um, but it's true that it's challenging. And, but they were great, those kids. Yeah. So you're a New Yorker. I think you're, I don't know if you're in New York now, but, you know, know, know the city well. And the city is so, they, this film is so much about just locations. Like you couldn't, uh, couldn't have filmed it anywhere else. Like Bemel Men's is such a major place in it. And so it makes me wonder if you, you know, spend seven years thinking of the script and being like, okay, I want to go there and I need to go in that location. Like how much of, when did the locations aspect of it come in, in place for you as, as part of the story? Yeah, definitely when I was writing it, I was picturing those places. And, and I think about in Tootsie when they go to the Russian Tea Room and as a kid coming to New York and those kind of classic, iconic places. And and really when I go to 21, I've sat at that table that was Bogart and Bacall's table and we really filmed at their table. And I remember the waiters saying that they remember Lauren Bacall coming there years later and standing at the bar and looking at that table. And so I just love all the history of those classic New York places and the waiters have worked there for years and know the stories. And I definitely was thinking about those specific places when I was writing and I'm so glad that they let us film there. Yeah. And you have her, she's living in Soho and I think the, like the, the school and everything else, like were you trying to work with that contrast of like Soho versus those kind of classic Upper East Side locations? Like it, it's, it's so Manhattan-y, but these different worlds of Manhattan that interact in the movie. Yeah. I definitely wanted to have, she was downtown and Felix was part of the old school uptown world and, and they're, they're so different, but, um, that they can, she can go between them and, you know, and he's in the Chet Baker world of martinis. And then she's on the busy streets of, you know, downtown New York with the construction and the kind of the hecticness and then the contrast of being sealed off in his car shooting around. And, and then being downtown at the end, they go to the, we shot an Indochine and Raul's and all these kind of places that have so much history and memories and, for New Yorkers. So I imagine you were at least editing this movie or finishing some of it since the pandemic started and so many of these locations have been unavailable to us. Like, it, it, it has a nostalgic tint to it. I think it would have anyway of these, like, kind of old world New York places, but it's so much more intense now that you, like, can't go inside a bar and drink a martini. Um, just how did that feel for you, kind of, like, living within this 
this beautiful world you had created that is now like even more non-existent than it was when you made it. Yeah, I don't, well, we, we finished our sound mix, which is the last stage, um, mid-March, like really like a week before everything shut down. And I felt wow. so lucky that we, yeah, that we had that New York in, you know, saved. And, um, and I feel for people that were still filming and had to go back and finish filming. So I feel really lucky about that. But, and then seeing it, there's, Scenes where like Bill shakes Marlon's hand and you're like, ah, yeah. don't touch his hand. And, I know. and then we had a scene where Bill like kind of was with the kids and Rashida and kind of scolding or kind of making fun of her for washing her hands. People wash their <laughs> hands too much. And I was like, oh, so like we're like, oh, but no, we have to get this out. We can't. Like, it's just so. Um, so, yeah, there were those. And just the aspect that we were like, wow, that was only last summer. And we didn't realize it was a period film. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I get I get melancholy when I when we watched it together at the um, at our drive-in premiere mm-hmm. and seeing New York. I got a little teary-eyed when you see the cityscape of New York and, um, you know, it's New York that we love. But um, I hope it's I hope it's enjoyable for people to get to have a, be in a bar with Phil in New York that we love. Yeah, because it, it feels like there would have been a nostalgia to it, even if it wasn't the way that things are because of the way yeah. that, that Bill's character kind of exists and like, you know, this fa- fancy New York world that, yeah, he's from another era. Yeah, and like and like an era that almost um, mostly exists in the movies, like yeah. um, Bogey and Bacall's table at, at Twenty One Club. Yes, um, I like the way that her relationship with her dad is like he he's an important figure in her life in terms of how she relates to her family, but it's a lot of like him representing like the outside of the family freedom that she doesn't have. Like they have this this complicated relationship, but he represents freedom in some way, not as much as like how she is as a parent. And I don't know how to form a question around that, except I just thought it was an interesting way to think of a parent-child dynamic. And, and why why did that feel like an interesting dynamic to explore for you? Oh, yeah, he is. Well, he is like this free spirit and she's kind of um, bogged down with all the responsibility of kind of domestic life that she hasn't kind of found a balance to yet. And he kind of whisks her away and it's this escapism. And the fact that he he always kind of followed what he wanted to do and and wasn't always there for the family in the way there's there's that contrast and the conflict of of her looking at you know her choices and and how her family shaped how her relationship is so yeah I always wanted them to have a have a clash um but then there's a tenderness between between them and and you know the, the complication that those real relationships have where they're they're invigorating and also frustrating and yeah and have a and also have the dialogue between, you know, a man from his era and the, across the generation to her and, you know, things they don't agree on. But you also, um, you know, can have understanding and he, and he doesn't change. He's not going to change. Yeah. And there's there's something I think more under the surface is about how, like, the way that he lived as a father is something a mother could never do. Like, it just doesn't it doesn't work that way across the gender. And like, that's the, the, the strain in their relationship that's there, but not part of the plot as much. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think, I, yeah, I wanted to look at all, all those aspects of, yeah, of you making a family and relationships and, and how your parents affect you and how men's attitudes to women growing up, how that affects you and, um, and just just the, all the complicated dynamics of that. Yeah. There's this factor in the movie of travel that, again, like, I think maybe it stands out more because of now you can't just shut off to Mexico. But, you know, uh, Bill's character travels all the time. And then the husband, the whole reason that the relationship is kind of strained is because he's traveling all the time. And as a filmmaker, you travel all the time. And I just it, having made that and now not going anywhere, like, do you do you reflect on that differently? Like, does that feel like a um, like a relationship that changed for everybody, maybe? 
Yeah, that's funny because we were always traveling all the time. And during this period, thinking like, God, this is the longest I've ever been where I haven't (laughs) traveled and and haven't packed and unpacked. And and we've all had to kind of sit still and, um, and, and this, they're all kind of coming and going. And yeah, it makes you reconnect and reflect in a, in a different way. But yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, like, it's just so different when you're in like one place and coming home every night versus like having, being married to someone who's like running off around the place. Like there's no way to know what's, you know, happening in their mind, which is, um, it's changed for everybody (laughs) since it's gone on. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I wanted her to be at a moment. I think when your kids are little, you have, there's a moment where you, you have to be around and then they get older and you have more freedom. But so she feels you know, a little bit like he's off on all these, having these fun trips and new experiences and, and her life is kind of in this, in this rut that she's not, and she's not creatively found her, her writing isn't fulfilling her. So she's just kind of, um, kind of stuck. And, and then hopefully by the end, she's reconnected. I don't want to like ask like overly prying questions, but I'm curious about you from having been, like, when you had these young children and like, you were still making films and you were still like connected in the world, but like filmmaking involves like going to Cannes and all this cool stuff. And you have friends who are like off on location shoots. Did you have that moment of being like, oh my God, like I am trapped here. Like I love my children, but like the whole world is spinning on without me. And then you have to like find your way to get back into it. Like, is that, is that a feeling that, that strikes a chord for you as well? You know, I feel like I, look, I grew up just, we, we, we were always taken with the, everywhere. We would go to Cannes and go on location. So I, I, that, I sort of did that too. And I remember my, my daughter was like six weeks old and we were going to Venice. So like, you know, so <laughs> I didn't feel in that way. So removed, but, um, but there is, there definitely is a, an aspect of, of feeling cut off or a, a little bit of loneliness of, of trying to find your, find your way at that, at that moment. And, 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 and then you start to kind of meet, friends that are in the same situation and you can and you can relate to them and, and the story didn't want her to have a strong support base because then I thought she would never get carried away on this adventure yeah yeah you had to be a little bit more isolated um but I think for me I just I used to write all night long and then the idea of like what I have to wake up in the morning like how do you do this I can't write during the day like you know so you definitely have to re, you know shift and and um hopefully figure it out which which I got through that period. <laughs> There's a thing that happens for writers, I think maybe more than filmmakers, is that like if you write about motherhood, like sometimes it gets like sh- like shuffled off into like, oh, this is just for moms. This is just for women. Was there was there a hesitation for you in addressing motherhood in your work in that way? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to talk about what was true for me in this moment of my life, but I didn't want it to be like, yeah, it's not very glamorous. It's, you know, like it was <laughs> that boring to talk about those details. So, I mean, I, I tried to, to balance it and, and, and hope that it's not... Um, it doesn't kind of take over the, the whole story, but to, but to be honest about that experience. Um, I think I'm quoting you right that you've, you've said that you feel okay with the idea of people kind of watching this cozy at home, like it's going to be on Apple TV, like theaters are not open. And, you know, obviously that's a practical reality. Most people have to see it that way. Did, but did it take you a while to come around to that as a way for people to see your work? Or has that always been kind of okay with you? You know, it's, it's, I think specific to this movie, it's not um, some epic that needs to be seen on a big screen. I feel like it is kind of a cozy movie that you can see at home and, um, and, and enjoy in that way. So I feel like it, it, it suits itself to that. And especially at these times, I'm okay with that. But I, you know, I, I was excited the idea of working with A24 to have a theatrical and then Apple to, to reach, you know, a bigger audience at home. I still miss the 
yeah, the, just the communal aspect of being in a theater and, and sharing the emotions that you feel in the room. There's nothing like that. But um, I think in this time, we're also, it's so welcome to have some travel, you know, by watching yeah. movies. And, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm happy that it's, it seems like it's getting out there into people's homes. When you when you hear about someone, like, if they watch, like, Lost in Translation on their phone, is there part of these, like, oh, God, no, you're missing so much? Or is it, do you, as your films get older, do you kind of accept that that's just how people are going to see it? No, I'm in denial. I can't. I, can't <laughs> I mean, you work, when, when I'm working with the cinematographer, we're thinking of it on a big screen. And, like, the idea of someone watching it on our phone, I think, to any filmmaker is like a, a knife in the heart. But, I mean, I, I guess I'm glad they're seeing it, but I can't imagine it that way. But I feel like this, I, yeah, I think I, I'm happy people watch it at home. And I do feel like it can be, I don't know. I hope it, when people tell me like, oh, I watched it, you know, with my hus- husband, we watched it in bed and had ordered our favorite food and you like yeah. make it, yeah, something cozy. I, I, I feel like it's um, kind of, I hope a comfort right now. Yeah. Does it affect the way that you think about what you want to make or how you make what you are making, like knowing the way that people are approaching it? Like, you know, the theatrical experience, I, you know, I think we all hope is going to live on, but it's just going to it's going to happen more and more that people watch it at home. Like, does that does it change your aesthetics or, or how you approach what you want to do? Uh, not really, because I think I always picture it on a big screen, even if um, even if you see it once with the crew screening, you know, you get to see it on a big screen. And then um, but I love watching movies at home, too. I think one last question for you then. So when you've got something like this, it's done, you know, you finish it in March, so you've had this time to kind of like sit with it. How do you, what do you do for yourself to kind of move on to the next thing? Like, is it demanded by the schedule and you just have to jump into it? Like, what's the, what's the process to kind of shift gears to, to what's next? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. I feel like sometimes um, you just kind of wander around and try to figure out, feel like what you're excited about. And in my case, I um, there's an Edith Wharton book that I've always loved called The Customer of the Country that I've always wanted to adapt. And so so now I'm starting to think about that. And it's um, it's a fun, like, escapism into another era. And um, But I'm enjoying thinking about adapting that. And after, uh, writing an original screenplay is so much harder for me. So it's sort of like a, a little break to adapt something. But it has its own challenges. But it's it's fun. It's like a puzzle to figure out how you adapt. Is it a relief to be in the adaptation phase and not like trying to make something that you, you know, you have the freedom to write, but even though films can't go into production right now? Um, I mean, it's still weird to imagine, like, are we really going to be, and I know people are shooting it on set, but it's, it it does feel a little bit like, are we really going to be able to make that? But I think you just get lost in the fantasy of the story and, and, um, and and the puzzle of how to adapt that to, to the medium. I know at least one person who's been like methodically going through Edith Wharton as like a way not to read election news, which just sounds perfect. Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> like I read Rebecca for the first time and I was like, this is exactly what I need. Just like a whole different universe from what I'm living in. So, yeah, I think we all I think we all need a little break from the world around us. <laughs> that sounds very interesting. That's lavish and beautiful. It feels appealing right now. That does it for this week's show. As we said, uh, next week will be our 2000 Oscar flashback episode. So if you too want to rewatch Gladiator or Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon or anything else, please join us. I think it's going to be a nice break from reality. Um, in the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com. Uh, you can find Chris's writing about uh, what happened behind the scenes of Borat 2. Uh, Rachel and Joanna's writing as well. You can find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Right, Laws. And Joanna. Joe wrote this. And Chris. At Chris J. Rosen. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best preview of our 2000 Oscar flashback episode goes to Joanna Robinson. The dose of serotonin we need. 